serving other gods, so they are doing also to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the 10th of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the 10th of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Thank you, Sam. Let's bow for prayer. God, you are the king of the universe. And yet we all know that we have chosen to put someone else on the throne way too often. And so, Father, we come to you this morning, not because uh, we have anything to add to you, not because we've earned the right to stand before you, but with empty hands and with a need for forgiveness. Father, thank you for sending your son, King Jesus, who wore the crown of thorns so that we could have that forgiveness. Lord, I pray this morning that if there are any in this room who have not found justice and safety and security and significance in you, but have been looking for those things in someone else, in a king like all the nations, pray that you would turn each one of our hearts back to you again. Because God, you deserve our wholehearted worship and our brokenness before you. Father, we uh, pause as well uh, before we open up the scriptures and we just pray for wisdom uh, as we enter into a season of looking for a new leader. Um, Lord, we need your guidance. We need your direction. The stakes are high. We need someone uh, that you have for us, uh, not because he's going to uh, somehow rescue us from some uh, problem, but because uh, we need to walk in your ways. And so, Father, as we begin this search process for a new associate pastor of youth and children, I pray that you would bless us with something we don't deserve, a man who points us to you in all the things that he does. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was in Bible college, 
uh, we were required as part of our freshman orientation class to attend a guided tour of the Campus Art Museum. Uh, it was sort of the thing, kind of the kind of a thing that few 18-year-olds really appreciate. You know, I w- had homework, I had work, I had classes. Uh, some might say I had something of a social life. That's debatable. I didn't understand the value of spending an hour walking around the only building on campus quieter than the library. Apparently, it's the largest collection of religious fine art uh, outside of Vatican City. And now, with almost 20 years of hindsight, I feel I probably should have given it a little bit more of my attention and focus than I actually did. But I do remember a few of the paintings that we were there to see on on that guided tour. In this uh, one painting in particular... This particular example uh, from European master Peter Paul Rubens. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. Uh, But it's called Christ on the Cross. And in this painting, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is imagined against a dark and stormy background, nailed to a wooden cross and crowned with thorns. What's remarkable about this particular painting, though, is that Christ, though dying looks so strenuously full of life. He isn't colorless and emaciated, but muscular. Instead of arms stretched out to the side, his body is arranged in such a way that his arms extend vertically. His hands are clutching the heads of the nails, and his head isn't bowed. It's lifted heavenward. I'm no expert, but I think what Rubens meant to convey all those centuries ago was what John the Evangelist communicated in his gospel, that the moment of Christ's death was nothing less than the moment of his coronation. When he wore that crown of thorns, he was proclaiming himself to be what he actually is, the king of the universe. And yet, as we read a few moments ago, as Serena read a few moments ago, The people of God, the nation of Israel, and especially her leaders, did in Jesus' day what they had always done. They did what we always do, apart from the grace of God. They traded in the ruler of the universe for a robber. This is what we do. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. We don't want God to be king. We want our own king. We want a king like the nations. Would that they had learned the lesson they should have learned in today's passage, 1 Samuel chapter 8. The children of Israel had been doing so well. They were walking in brokenness and repentance and God was ruling them. And yet they strayed, they faltered. And their example in chapter 8 teaches us a lesson that will be illustrated time and time again in the chapters to come in our study of 1 Samuel. But in order to really understand that lesson, we need to understand the actions of three main characters in this chapter. Those three main characters are Samuel, the elders of Israel, and then, of course, the main character of the whole Bible, God himself. So let's look at our first character, Samuel. Notice what's going on in verses 1 through 3. Samuel became old. Biblical writers have the ability to sort of speed up or slow down the narrative, and we're, uh, we're given almost no information, excuse me, about Samuel's uh, time as judge. He, he just skips over this long period of time. By all indications, uh, reading 
from, from chapter 7 from our previous week, uh, we learn that Samuel was a fantastic leader for many decades. Israel has freedom from the Philistines. They have peace with the Amorites. And yet, now his time is short and he's getting close to the end. And he, in chapter 8, makes a decision that, quite frankly, he doesn't actually have the right to make. I suppose people didn't want to disagree with the great Samuel. And so what he does is he sets up his sons as judges in the southernmost city of Israel, and he returns home far to the north in his hometown of Ramah. And there are two problems with, with this. First of all, uh, Samuel was not a king, not even a, technically a priest. He was a judge. The office of a judge is, is described in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, Judges were supposed to have the authority to decide difficult cases between two individuals, but judges did not have the authority to appoint their successors. That's something that Samuel was not supposed to do. So that's problem number one. In the book of Judges, we see this, some examples of this, and it never works out. The judges are not kings. They are not allowed to pass their office on to their son. Samuel's doing something he doesn't have the right to do. The second problem, though, is that the character of these two guys is, leaves a lot to be desired. These were not righteous men. They just twist justice and take bribes. So in other words, the nation of Israel, at the end of Samuel's life, is more or less in a similar place to where they were when Eli was in power. You remember when Eli was the high priest in Shiloh and his sons were the priests underneath him? And what were they? They were so wicked, so worthless, that they got themselves killed along with thousands of others. Now Samuel's sons are doing some of the same things that Eli's sons had done. So here in the first few verses, we can already glean something very practical for our lives today. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on in this uh, Uh, in, in these first three verses, even the best leaders will eventually disappoint. Even the best leaders will eventually disappoint. Samuel is presented in this book as a Christ-like figure. He's a leader whose character and whose reputation put him in a unique place among the judges and the kings and the priests of Israel. His tenure was a time of peace and justice and safety for the people of Israel. When Luke, uh, the evangelist, wants to talk about the early years of Jesus' life, he actually borrows language from, from 1 Samuel that originally applied to Samuel when Samuel was a young boy. And yet, at the end of the day, here's a flawed human leader, created in God's image, and yet still tainted by the reality of sin. And he does what every leader does. Eventually, he disappoints. He falls short of the ideal. And even though this has happened with every leader ever, with one solitary exception, the Lord Jesus Christ, we still forget this reality so easily. I myself, I've I've had to learn this lesson the hard way more than I care to admit. When I was a teenager, I belonged to a local church that was truly busting at the seams. I mean, there was, the pews were packed, the parking lot was packed. Uh, We had over a thousand people in attendance, uh, not because it someone had watered down the message or it was like some kind of shopping mall type church. No, this was like a, it it was like, it seemed like really cool things were happening. Like God was really working there. And as I I remember as a junior in high school, sitting in the front pew, kind of right where we sit, our family sits now, but in the very front, front pew, 
on a Sunday evening, a Sunday evening service, and just being overwhelmed, like deafened by the noise of people singing the hymns behind me. There was that many people uh, with us worshiping. But guess what? If there were any illusions that that institution or those particular leaders were somehow the exception to the rule, time would correct those illusions. Because when I went off to Bible college, I learned uh, through my family that they had had some difficult business meetings. People were shouting at each other, making accusations, trying to engage in these sort of power plays that happen in congregations. The church would eventually split. Today, that congregation is still going, but it's maybe a third of the size that it was. Similar decline took place where I went to seminary. I went to a small seminary uh, founded by a local church pastor. Uh, It was a great school. Uh, They prided themselves in a good way on how many churches that their graduates had planted in the region. A few years into my time there, the seminary president got up at, at chapel and he shared with us his 2020 vision. I'm so glad I didn't have a 2020 vision, you know, to take back. Well, he had one. I can't remember all the details, but it had to do with how many churches they wanted to see planted by the year 2020. It was a wonderful vision. It was an ambitious vision. But by the time I graduated, the school was already beginning to make plans to close their doors. My professors all took teaching positions somewhere else, and that was that. And you say, well, of course. I mean, they have five years of you. What do you expect is going to happen? But listen, the same story could be told a hundred times over. Institutions, churches, schools, missions agencies, they rise and they fall. This is what happens. They come and they go. Whether it's a moral failure on the part of a leader, a lack of competent leadership, uh, circumstances beyond their control, eventually all these leaders, all these organizations, they are going to fall short of the ideal. This is just what happens. They eventually disappoint. And everyone who's involved in the glory years is sort of left looking at each other and saying, what happened? What happened was what always happens. Leaders disappoint. Institutions decline. That's what they do. You say, why does it have to be that way? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but regardless of the specifics, the real issue is this. There is only one King Jesus. There's only one. When Samuel the judge starts to usurp the authority of the King of Heaven, that's when things go wrong. Because he's not Jesus, he's the servant of Christ. And for a moment, he forgot that. We must remember that there is only one King Jesus. It breaks my heart to see people walk away from Christ because Christ's servant disappointed them. You need to know that that can absolutely happen here. I, I feel silly even saying this, but I, experience tells me I probably need to say it. I am not the Messiah, and neither are any of our elders or leaders. Even collectively, we are just servants of Christ. There's only one Jesus, and it's not your pastor, it's not your doctor, it's not your therapist, it's not your school superintendent or your spouse or your college professor. And when you look to any one of those people to be Jesus to you, then guess what? Eventually, that rug is going to be pulled out from under you, and that leader, that institution is going to disappoint. Because that's what happens. There's only one King Jesus, and they are not him. Don't put too much confidence in human leaders. They'll disappoint you. The best of them... The best of them, they grow weak physically and eventually they die. 
and then they're gone. By the way, before we move on from Samuel, let me also say something to those of you who are leaders. It's actually most of the people in this room to one degree or another. Don't make the mistake that Samuel makes. This is often where we crash and burn. We feel our influence slipping away. Uh, We find that people are dividing their loyalties between us and other people. And what do we do? We begin to use the power that we've accumulated to try to hold on to and grab more of that power. Eventually, we're going to give away our influence to somebody else. It's going to happen. Your kids will eventually care more about what somebody else thinks than what you think. Your employees will eventually outgrow their need for you. That's a good thing. The same thing happens in the church, among the people of God. Eventually, we yield our influence to somebody else. It happens sooner than we think. And that process requires a lot of wisdom, but at the end of the day, here's what we need to remember. There's only one Jesus, and I'm not him, and you're not him. So I'm not going to try to gain influence and power for myself. I want to give all of that back to King Jesus, and I'm not going to give you the place that Jesus has in my life. Eventually, every human leader is going to disappoint. They're going to fall short, everyone except the Lord Jesus. And in Samuel's case, he doesn't want to face that reality, so he makes some decisions that lead to a faithless request on the part of the elders. So let's turn our attention away from Samuel and talk about these elders. The elders of Israel return. The last time we heard from them was in chapter 4 when Eli was still in leadership in Shiloh. And it would seem that this new crop of elders is just as prone to poor leadership as their forebears in the days of Samuel's youth. Uh, The elders see what's going on with Samuel and his family, and instead of going to the Lord, instead of uh, trying to depend more fully on the Lord, they go to Samuel and they try to attempt this sort of power play. Like, Samuel, you're, you're getting old. Your sons are not the same as you. We need a king. We need somebody that's going to shore up our defenses, somebody that's going to lead us in the way that we need to be led. By the way, this is something else that we can say about Samuel. Poor leadership tempts God's people to make ungodly decisions. And Samuel set these guys up for this very thing. So they asked for a king. Now, if we go back to that passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, technically, they have the right to ask for a king. They have that ability. They may even be purposely invoking the language of Deuteronomy in order to sort of put pressure on Samuel. So asking for a king is not technically wrong, but if you read Deuteronomy 17, which we won't take the time to do, you learn that whatever king Israel might set up would need to be very different from the kings of all the nations surrounding. Uh, First of all, that this is going to be a king from among the people of God, so that's different. Secondly, this king is is not permitted to do the things that kings normally do. You're not allowed to accumulate gold and silver. You're not allowed to accumulate horses, which was kind of like having a large army and tanks and everything back in in those days. And you're not allowed to accumulate wives. For the kings of the ancient Near East, it would be like, well, why be a king? What's the benefit of being a king if I can't have gold and horses and wives? But the kings of Israel, they weren't allowed to do those things. And then thirdly, they they actually were required to copy for themselves a copy of God's law, and they had to be submitted to the law of God. That was totally different from the kind of kings in the ancient East. And so 
He's got to be an Israelite. He can't enjoy the normal perks of being a king, and he has to be subjected to the law. The, the king was the law in these other nation states. But it's clear that the elders, they don't want God's king. They want their own king. And notice how this request actually exposes the true nature of their hearts. Listen to God's assessment in verse 8. What does he say? According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. In other words, God sees this request for a king as part of a larger pattern. This is what they always do. They've been doing it since the time that they became, became a nation. They are rejecting God as king and trying to go out and find the king that they want, a king like all the nations. They experience the kindness and wisdom of God, and instead of leaning into that leadership, they reject it and they look elsewhere. And friends, we're a little different today because this type of rebellion is common to all human beings. We see a problem in the, in the world, and instead of entrusting that problem to God, what, what do we do? We look inside, and we come, we come up with our own solution. So here's the principle that we glean from the elders. Our tendency is to look for a fleshly solution to solve a spiritual problem. Our tendency is to look for a fleshly solution to solve a spiritual problem. Th this is what they were doing. Think about the absurdity of this request. The elders have enjoyed the leadership of God through the judgeship of, of Samuel. They notice a problem when Samuel tries to establish a, a kind of a dynasty. So they reject a dynastic arrangement when it comes to Samuel's sons. And then they conclude that the solution to this problem is to establish a dynastic arrangement in the family of a king. Do you see how silly that is? Like, how is that actually going to solve anything? I mean, yeah, sure, you can find a king who's really good, but guess what? Eventually, he's going to get old, and he's going to pass his influence on to the next generation, and they could be just as corrupt, if not worse, than Samuel's sons. So their solution isn't really a solution at all. The real problem is, as God tells Samuel, they don't want God to be the king. They're rejecting me as king, God says. So let's just get real here. What is, what is Israel really after? Look at verse 5. Appoint a king who will judge us, so they're after some kind of justice and equity. Like all the nations, they want status and prestige. They want to take their place among the leading nations of the world. And then verse 20, give us somebody who will go out and fight our battles for us. So they want a warrior. So what they're really doing is they're saying, we want justice. We want significance and status. We want safety. And we're going to look for those things somewhere other than King Jesus. We're going to look for, some, for those things other than in God. So we're, we'd like our own human fleshly solution to this problem, and we do the same thing today. We're living in a world that is short on justice. We all know that. The weak are trampled by the powerful. Kids are born into situations that set them up for failure. We throw money at the problem. Corrupt leaders come, and they steal the money. We struggle to find significance and meaning in our lives. Our work seems worthless. Our efforts go to waste. No one notices our struggles. We're not safe. Forces beyond our control impact daily life. Yes, even now in the United States of America, even with this veneer of control, even with this illusion of control, we do not have control over all the things that happen in our world. 
And so we long for that safety. Little did I know that when I began writing this sermon a few days ago, how this reality would be illustrated in such living color as it is right now, half a world away. I mean, think about this. The unprecedented nature of what's going on in the world. And yet it really is precedented. So we're hungry for justice and for significance and for safety. And in our desperation, we decide that instead of relying on King Jesus, we need to come up with our own solutions, institutional solutions, programmatic solutions, leadership, personnel changes. And when we do that, what we're doing is what God's people have always had a tendency to do. They've not rejected you, God tells Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. So folks, let's just think about this for a moment today in our lives. Let's think about our church. I have to admit, there have been countless times when I have personally had the thought, if we would just do blank, then all of our church's problems would go away. Have you ever had a thought like that? If we would just do blank, our family will be where it needs to be. If we would just do blank, our work will uh, just take off. If we just implemented this, then our church would go to the next level, or our young people would stop walking away from the faith. At a previous church, there was often tension between the pastor and the deacons, and uh, they, they didn't have a plurality of elders. And I thought, man, if we would just move to a plurality of elders, then we wouldn't have these problems. And then I began to meet people from churches who had a plurality of elders. That just means having more than one pastor, paid and unpaid, uh, who pastor the church together like we have at Indian Creek. Hey, man, if we, if we just did this, we, our problems would go away. And, and so I met more people that, that were belonging to more churches who had this type of setup. And guess what? Some of them had problems and some of them didn't. Because it wasn't about having a plurality of elders. And, and I just want you to know, we have a plurality of elders here because we see from the New Testament that that's what Jesus tells us to do. Not because having this kind of structure is going to like save us from our sins, right? Jesus rescues and rules the church. We obey him. The structure flows out of what Jesus is doing. It's not the thing in itself that makes us who, who we are. Apply this to our government. Hey, our government is broken. If we would just elect so-and-so, then everything would be fine, right? Listen, maybe that would be better to have this or that person in office. And I'm grateful for politicians who love the Lord and who lead in righteousness. That's wonderful. But if you think the spiritual problems of our country or our state or our, uh, our region are going to be solved by an earthly political solution, then you've, you're naive. Think again. Pastor Jake, our young people are going through so much. They're facing all these difficulties in the world. You know what we really need? We need a youth pastor who's going to be really easy to get along with, that they like and that they look up to. Somebody that attracts a crowd and plans fun events and saves our kids from the clutches of Satan. Listen, I, I can already see us going to a place where we don't need to go on this particular issue as a church. Because when I, as I've talked to people and I add up all the expectations that all of you have, and then I add them to the expectations that I have. I mean, whoever ends up coming here, he's in for it, right? <laughs> but listen, if we're looking for a man or a program to serve as the solution to a spiritual problem, we need to beware. Lots of kids grow up without a youth pastor and go on to serve Jesus. The solution is not to have a youth pastor. 
The solution is to trust Jesus Christ, King Jesus, to take care of his church. You say, Jake, you're making me nervous. Good. If you're of the mindset that we need a superstar youth pastor, or we need this state-of-the-art building, or we need a, a, an award-winning band, or we need a program that tripled some other church's attendance last year, then you need to be shaken up a little bit. Because we don't need any of those things. Amen. This is what Paul was teaching the Philippian believers. He said, I know how to abound, and I know how to be brought low. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and my God shall supply every need of yours. The elders of Israel were not content with the rule and reign of God. They rejected him as king, and we often do the same because what we're doing is we see a spiritual problem and we come up with a fleshly solution to that spiritual problem. May it never be. We've learned a lesson from Samuel. We've learned a lesson from the elders. Now let's look at the main character in this chapter. What does God himself do about all of this? Quite simply, the Lord decides in this case not to make the decision for the people of Israel. He does, however, issue a warning. He says, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them. And that warning occupies all of verses 10 through 18. Do you notice when Sam was reading the word that gets repeated over and over and over again in verses 10 through 18? What word gets repeated? Did anybody catch it? Pastor Andrew got it. Anybody else? <laughs> you don't count. <laughs> what do you say? Say it loud. Take. Take. That's right. What's this king going to do? What's your solution? The king that, that, that's like all the nations, what's he going to do? All he's going to do is take, take, take. Uh, those direct objects from these verbs are placed in the original Hebrew in the emphatic position in order to emphasize the variety and the value of the things that this king is going to take. He, it's like he's saying, your sons he will take, your daughters he will take, your your vineyards and your olive orchards he will take, your grain he will take, your servants he will take, your donkeys he will take, your flocks he will take. And when he's done taking all your stuff and everything you own and everything you hold dear, then he's going to come for you and he's going to take you and you're going to become his slaves. Now the children of Israel didn't listen to the warning and they're, they're going to pay dearly for that. But I personally don't want to follow in their footsteps, so here's the takeaway. Yes, even the best leaders disappoint. And it's true that our tendency is to find a fleshly, worldly solution to a spiritual problem. But in the third place, and this is really the big idea undergirding this entire chapter. So take this away, please. When we reject the rule and reign of God, we don't get freedom. We get oppression. When we reject the rule and reign of God, when we say, no, God, I don't want you to be my king. I want to set up my own solution. I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to break away. I want to be free from you. When we do that, we don't get freedom. We get shackled. 
The elders are saying we've trusted God for long enough. It's time to follow our own wisdom. And the Lord warns them and Samuel pleads with them. The king you're wanting is going to do nothing but take, take, take. You'll have nothing left. It will be like when you were living under the thumb of the Philistines, only this time it'll be worse because when you cry out, no one's going to hear. Now listen, Satan has invested a lot, a lot of counterintelligence efforts into this very topic. He has successfully convinced millions of people that the reason why there is oppression, why there is slavery, why there is harm and war in the world is because of Christianity. And I just need you to know, that's a lie. That is not true. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, please consider the evidence. Please don't be duped by a popular and erroneous narrative. Uh, take, uh, people talk about the Crusades, for example. You know, the classic example of Christians faithfully obeying God and going out and slaughtering thousands of unbelievers, right? Or powerful, wealthy leaders use religion as an excuse to plunder other nations, right? Or take slavery. Christian monarchs and merchants traveled the globe to enslave the oppressed as they're worshiping the Lord along the way. Or the rich and the powerful found religious excuses for their lustful power grabs and murderous enterprises. Let me ask you this. What nations have eradicated slavery, and why did they do so? What nations, what peoples have made advances in the alleviation of human suffering? Has it been people who have thrown off Christianity? No. No, it's been peoples who have committed themselves to uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the kingship of Jesus Christ. In every case, if you go back and you look for specific examples of individuals and institutions who have done the most to bring justice and significance and safety to the inhabitants of planet Earth, almost all of them are followers of Jesus Christ or they have been influenced heavily by followers of Jesus Christ. That is the historical truth. Does that result, on, on the contrary, look at what's taking place in, when those in power unmoor themselves from the God of the Bible. What happens then? Does that result in human flourishing and the alleviation of, of suffering? No. It does not and it will not. Keep your eye on the ball. One of the oldest tricks in the book is for a tyrant to justify his evil acts by an illegitimate appeal to the Bible. They are betting on the fact that most people do not know what this book says and those who do, do not care. The reason I'm belaboring this point is because this is an area where we are so easily deceived, friends. There is a concerted satanic effort to get you and me to think that to throw off the constraints of God's rule would equal freedom and justice and significance and safety for all. Don't believe it for a minute. Teenagers, listen to me. Say no to the voice inside you whispering that it would be better to forget the God of the Bible and live the way you want than to submit to his rule and his reign in your heart. Christ's way is not an easy way. Make no mistake, the path is narrow and the journey is tiring. The way of the world seems so much easier, but it's a trap. It's the very first trap and the most destructive you will ever encounter. See, throwing off the rule of God, it doesn't get you freedom. It gets you the exact opposite. It gets you oppression. 
It's going to bring oppression and hate and murder. You go that way, the time will come when you will look back and ask, how did I get here? I'm not free. I'm not in a better place. My life is destroyed. But just like Samuel tells the elders of Israel, the day will come when it will be too late for you to turn back, friends. When you cry out, no one will hear. How much better to live by faith today in the rule and in the reign of the God who made the world, the God who invented the the beauty of a sunset and the the wonder of companionship and and peace and relationships. This is the one, the, the God who loved us and sent his one and only son to be the savior and the rescuer and the king of all the earth. Don't reject him as your king today. If you're familiar with our ministry here at Indian Creek, you know I'm not in the habit of giving you hot takes on the latest culture battles. That's not the way I am. Uh, We don't need to rush to comment on everything that's happening. No one is an expert on everything, least of all me. Anyone who acts like he is, quite frankly, is a fool. Don't listen to a person like that. But two to three years ago, we plunged as a nation, and particularly as Christians, into a heated debate about the meaning of liberty and justice for all. I hesitate to even bring this up because it's like, it's like throwing red meat into a pack of wolves. Like some of you eat this stuff up. But some people came along and they pointed out some problems and some specific ways in which the citizens of the world and, the, and, and particularly our own country weren't safe, in which they didn't have justice, in which they were being treated as insignificant, and they were correct. It was like what the elders said to Samuel. I mean, here's a problem, Samuel. We can show you. We can tell you. Something's wrong with our current setup, and people are hurting. And just like the elders of Israel, many, many really smart, creative people have been positing solutions to our nation's ills. And it's finally to the point where people in power are listening, putting some of these solutions into place. And I just want to ask you, do you see evidence that the solutions of the world are going to bring us anything like justice, safety, significance? So you saw some problems. Is the solution you're proposing better than being submitted to King Jesus? And I have to say, what I'm seeing is that when we or our neighbors respond to the disappointments and the injustices and the evils of our society by running further away from King Jesus, the result has not been freedom. It's been greater oppression and greater suffering. You want justice, you want significance, you want safety. Try this. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How about this? The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Or from Luke 22, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves." 
Folks, listen to me. The only king who ever said those things, the only king that you can trust is King Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. His justice is sure and his mercies are new every morning. He rules, not by taking, not by taking all of your stuff and taking you, but by giving himself. Giving his own body and his blood so that those who believe might be rescued from unrighteousness and welcomed into the royal family. Listen, the elders of Israel, they didn't heed this warning. They didn't listen. But we have an opportunity to heed the warning today. The warning not to trade the rule of God in Christ for a robber king like all the nations. I say, what do I do about that? What I, what I do is I look at the world and I see all the injustice and the danger and the emptiness that's all around. And then I look in myself and I see that the seeds that have sprouted into all that evil all around the world are actually present in my own heart. And instead of saying, I want to be free from the rule of God, I say, I need someone to cleanse this. I need someone to forgive this. I need someone to rule this. And I want to be ruled by the one who gave his life for me. In what part of your life are you trying to free yourself from the rule of God? Where are you looking for justice and significance and safety other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, let's get back on track. Let's stop living in the restlessness of 1 Samuel chapter 8 and get back to the brokenness and the repentance of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Let's pray together. God, forgive us for the ways that we have rejected you as king. For the ways that we have deceived ourselves into thinking that freedom from you would equal happiness and safety and significance and justice. Lord, that's a lie. I pray that you would expose the areas of our heart where we've done that, and I pray that you would enable each person in here to begin living as true subjects of King Jesus. Father, we praise you, we love you, and we say this in Jesus' name, amen.